Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Let's stand together as we prepare to worship the Lord through song. I'm going to teach you a new song this morning. Uh, but before I do, I want you to remember Ephesians 2 that says, By grace we have been saved through faith. And uh, that's what we get to come here to do this morning is to recount and remember God saving us, not by any work of our own or any merit of our own, but because of his son. And uh, we get to remember that. We get to sing about that. We get to rejoice about that. And uh, that's what this next song is about. So I'm going to sing the chorus for you first and just jump in when you kind of get the hang of it. All right. Here we go. You, my God, have saved my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. You are my God and you saved my soul. That's how the chorus goes. Got the hang of it? Let's try to sing it together. You, my God, have saved my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. You are my God and you saved my soul. Yes, you have. Help us fix our eyes upon you this morning, Lord. Sing. I was lost when you came for me, held in chains by the enemy but you broke them in victory now i'm free i am free you're my joy and you are my hope i am saved by your grace alone i will sing of your love for me i am free i am pay for my every sin and from now through eternity I am free I am free you my God have saved my soul I am yours forevermore I won't be moved to this I'm sure you are my God and you saved my soul Thank you for all that you've done for us. What once was dead is now alive. You gave to me the breath of life. You brought me up out from the grave. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. What once was dead is now alive. You gave to me the breath of life. You brought me up out from the grave. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. We'll sing together. You, my God, you saved. 
save my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. You are my God and you save my soul. Amen. 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 Awesome. You all can be seated. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing well? Cold? Right? Good grief. Only in Texas can we have such schizophrenic weather. Uh, but you know what? Remember it because we're going to get to the summer. It's going to be like July 12th or something. It's going to be 160 degrees. And just think back to this week and be like, it does get cold here. It does get cold. <laughs> uh, I hope you guys are having a great Sunday so far. Uh, I want to start out by welcoming any guests or any visitors that are here with us this morning. Uh, we're so glad that you're here, and I'd love to introduce myself very quickly. Uh, my name is Jeremiah Smith, and I'm the pastor here at University Baptist, and, and we're glad that you've chosen this to be a place of worship this Sunday morning. And, and we hope that as you are here today, this is not just an opportunity for you to meet new people uh, and feel encouraged, but in time for you to find a meaningful opportunity to worship your creator and to be stirred in a greater devotion and love for him. And so we want to facilitate that with you and realize that that takes place more than just in a Sunday morning setting, uh, that that's something that we do on a daily basis. And so we want to walk with you in that desire. And so what we would love is that if you are a guest and a visitor, for you to leave some basic information with us. If, if you look in the back of your pew, we have a little connection card that you can grab, fill that out, and here in a little while when we collect the offering, if you don't mind just putting it in the offering plate, that way it'll get to our church offices and we can follow up and get that to you. If you're not within reach of one of these, then ask somebody that is to pass it down to you. Uh, another way in which you could share some information is you could text the word guest to the number that should be on the screen here, and that'll give you a few just simple prompts that you could uh, fill out and allows us to, again, follow up with you and see how we can answer questions, how we can pray for you, and just walk alongside you in your faith journey as well. Uh, and then lastly, if you are new, uh, at the end of the service, I'd love to meet you face-to-face. -face. And so just come on down here at the, at the bottom of the aisle here and, and introduce yourself so I can put a face to the name and hear some of your stories. Uh, but we're glad that you're here. Uh, now, if you are new and you've been here uh, one week or you've been here many years, uh, a couple of things I want to highlight about today's service is that obviously we have a little bit of a different look, kind of have a different setup for the band today, which is always fun and exciting. But in addition to that, we're going to have a little bit of a different flow to the service uh, than what we do typically and so I want to highlight some of those things just to keep you aware. If you're a young parent or a young family, you know, and you've been here before, we typically have a time during our service where we let the children come forward and they hear a word from Miss Tricia. Uh, that's something that we're going to not do today. And so later during the offering service, uh, we will have a slide that will go up. And if you have a child that needs to go to extended session or if you're a new family, that's an opportunity for you to send your kids to a place when the sermon begins, and, and we will have Miss Tricia, Miss April over here on these doors on my left that will meet you there during the offering time so that they can go uh, to that place if that's something that they desire. Now, in addition to that, uh, while that's a different rhythm to the Sunday, uh, a lot of times when we conclude our service, we typically just have one song of response, but this week we're going to have more, and that's by design. Uh, that's intentional. It's something I wanted us to have a little bit of an extended time of worship uh, after the message, and so when, when I finish preaching, that's not the cue for uh, lunch, right? It's the time for us to get ready for more worship. And so I, I've said this before, and let me just reiterate it. When we do these things, I want to remind you of a couple of things, that what we're striving for is a certain level of familiarity with our services on Sunday that allow you to engage intentionally, uh, but they're not so routine and redundant that we disengage. And so we will have some variations along the way. When we invoke some of those variations, 
Please understand that that's not an indictment on anything that we've done before. We love children. This is a family atmosphere of worship, and just because we're bypassing that today doesn't mean we're not going to continue to include them as a part of our worship service. I want you to understand that. Uh, We're not always going to end this way. We're not always going to flow this way. Uh, Our desire, though, is to follow the scriptures and just have a meaningful spirit of worship. And and what we know uh, is that it's really not about an order of service. It's not about the songs we choose. It's not about a, a particular bias or preference. Uh, the only way in which we really get to engage in such a meaningful way is through the spirit of a living God. And so as we begin today, that's what we want to start off with, is to invite him into this uh, sanctuary and into our hearts and minds as we seek to honor and worship him today. So would you pray with me, and then we'll continue. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we do love you, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would now rest in this place. Father, we do declare what we've just sung. You saved our souls, and we are yours forevermore. May that be a truth that ignites a passion and a love and a devotion to you that is incomparable to anything else we experience in this world. And so, Father, may we submit to you today. May we worship you today in fullness and in truth and celebrate the resurrected King, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. It's in his name that we gather. It's in his name that we pray. And amen, amen. Okay, at this point, I'd like to ask you to stand up and introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. And then Matt will continue to lead us in worship. All right, we go ahead and make your way back to uh, your pew, and we'll continue in worship. Well, let's sing together. God is able. God is able. this morning. Sing, God is with us. God is with us. God is on our side. He will make a way. 
far above all we know, far above all we hold. He has done great things, lifted up, He defeated the grave, raised to life.
my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Help us to remember how much we need you. We thank you that you are always there for us. Your steadfast love pursues us and is our confidence, is our foundation. Amen. Well, you can be seated. We're going to transition to a time of offering. And I just want to remind you, this is uh, when your children would come forward. Uh, to my left, Miss Tricia and April are here to receive the kids. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for bringing us here today and just um, letting us come together to worship you and cry out for how much we do need you. And we know that we are so undeserving and so blessed um, by how generous you are and how faithful you are. So we just ask that as we bring our gifts to you this morning, you would, um, you would bless them to minister in ways that only you can to those who don't know you in our community and in our world. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen. blind, now I'm seeing color. I was dead, now I'm living forever. I had failed, but you were my redeemer. I've been blessed beyond all measure. I was lost, now I'm found by the Father. I've been changed from ruin to treasure. I've been given a home and a future. I've been blessed beyond all measure. I am counting every blessing, counting every blessing, letting go and trusting when I cannot see. I am counting every blessing, counting every blessing, surely every season you are good. 
focus our hearts and our minds on the service today. You think about the lyrics of that song, that what we're here to do and and what we've gathered here to to achieve is to celebrate the goodness of our God. You think about the the ways in which those lyrics unfold, and it doesn't matter what you faced, doesn't matter what we've encountered, doesn't matter what you're going through in life, um, good or bad, we have the opportunity to come here and to reflect upon, especially in light of the Easter season, that we serve a resurrected king, right? So no matter what it is that we carry, we can celebrate his goodness. We can celebrate the salvation uh, that he offers to all of us. And, and what a thing to declare, what a thing to celebrate. And we're grateful that we have such gifted musicians and leaders to help us be reminded of that. And so as we uh, just go to the Lord and his scriptures right now, let's just pray that that posture of, of blessing, that posture of gratitude for his goodness would continue to just bless our hearts and our souls as we convene together. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good to us. And so help us to see the blessings that you bestow upon us in Christ. Father, not not the blessings of earthly things, but in a grace that has transformed us, 
renewed us and restored us. Father, we're unworthy to come in here and behold this gospel, and yet you've entrusted it to us. And so, Father, may it once again enrich us in a way that only you can. Father, we declare this this promise that your word is living and active. And so as we venture into the scriptures now, we pray that our hearts would truly resonate with the things that you want us to see, the things that you want us to hear. Father, and that we would be sensitive to your leading and your prompting more than anything else. And so we commit this time to you in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So uh, this morning marks the beginning of a new series. I mentioned that last week as we finished up Psalm 118 uh, that kind of took us through the Easter season. Uh, that this is going to be a series that, as you can see on your worship guide, that is referred to as worthless worship. And, and the kind of subtext there is that this is going to be, next few weeks or so through the rest of the month in April, uh, a journey into seeing uh, a modern-day look of idols and, and the way in which idols often distract us from a full devotion to Christ and to God. And so uh, I look forward to this series. I, I think it will be challenging in some respects, but I hope it's also affirming and, and encouraging along the way as well. And so we have several things that, that we need to discuss today. Today will be kind of an introduction and, and kind of laying a foundation uh, as we pursue this. And, and here's the thing that I, w- I would like to share with you all, especially if you're a guest, or really for, for any of you, the, the thought process that I put into these, these teachings that we do on a Sunday morning is, is really anchored in prayer and is and it's kind of charted out for us a long time ago. I try to look at a year at a whole, as a whole, and try to figure out what is it that we need to go through as a church. Now, my default approach is to be in the scriptures. Okay, that's, that's where I want us to be. And you guys have hopefully seen that in the first year and a half that I've been here, that, that we've gone through just a book of a Bible uh, on numerous occasions, whether it was Mark or Colossians or 1 John or, or repeated visits to the Psalms. That, that's my default. That's my preference. But I do believe that there are times where we need to make room for more of a topically driven uh, series. And, and sometimes the reasons we need to do that is to shape vision and culture, especially as we're trying to settle into kind of my tenure here and everything else that we're trying to achieve. But then sometimes there are just certain things that the Lord puts on my heart, and, and I think that we need to address as a congregation. And that's kind of what this series is, is this is kind of a topical journey into certain things that uh, I have felt convicted on and things that I feel like we need to address in order for us to engage in a more devoted life with Christ. And so uh, as a result, the challenge is that we don't have the, the luxury of just working incrementally through a text, and, and so we need to, obviously we'll be biblically guided every time that we gather, uh, but we need to lay the foundation of understanding that we will always be in the scriptures whenever we go through these series. And so today is really my uh, effort to, to provide for us a foundational text that kind of gives us the lens in which we need to, to utilize when we go through this discussion of modern-day idols. And, and that's what I hope that we can accomplish today. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 17, and we'll get to there in a little while. Okay, I've got a few things I want to talk about uh, here before too long. But just in case it's been a while, you may need time to find it. Uh, here's where I want to begin. So about a year ago or so, I heard a story from a friend of mine, and uh, he was telling me about this time that he came home from work, and he pulled up in front of his house, and he noticed that his garage door was just on the fritz. Like, it, it was lowering and then raising, lowering, just up and down, up and down, over and over again. It was very unusual. And he pulled in front, and he goes, well, what is causing this? This, this is very um, not normal for my garage. And so he was kind of disheartened by it, thinking, okay, I'm going to have to call some repairman or an electrician. Something is clearly off. And so he parks out front, goes inside, and walks to the garage to see if there's anything obvious that's causing 
you know, this, this malfunction. Doesn't see anything that's, that's obvious. The garage door stops, and so he thinks, okay, well, it's stopped for now. I'll get to that later. And so he kind of gets settled in after a long day at work, um, and, and my friend was older, and, and one of the things about his home life was that uh, his mom, who was, who was pretty along in age, was aging, had, had moved in with him, and he was taking care of her, and so it's kind of customary for him to come home and check in on her, and so he says, well, mom, you doing all right today? And she said, yeah, everything's going good. And she said, all right. And he said, uh, you getting ready to watch the Rangers? And she said, well, I'm trying, but I can't get the, the TV to work, can't get it on the right channel. And he walked in, and he said, well, let me see if I can help you. And she was sitting there. She's just trying to change the channel over and over again. It wasn't working. And he looked down, and he saw it wasn't the TV remote. It was the garage door opener, right? And so he just kind of was like, all right, problem solved. I don't have to call anybody, and I can also help her get the TV figured out. And he, he shared that story with me, and, and it, to me, was just so perfect of a representation of those times in life where we we have something in our possession that we don't really know what to do with it, right? And it confuses us. Now, a lot of times we unfairly kind of use these examples to say, well, it typically is the older generation that, that is trying to learn new technologies that are being developed. And, and that's understandable because technology is developing at such a rapid rate. But it's not just the older generation. In fact, if you go home and you were to get on YouTube and do this series called Kids React, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's really pretty entertaining, they'll get these kids from ages like 8 to 12, and they'll give them old expressions of technology and see how they react to it. And, and one of my favorites, I was going to show you the video, but we don't have time for it. Um, one of my favorites was showing these kids a Walkman and a cassette tape. And they like hand it to an 8-year-old, eight, and they're like, what do you think it is? And they're like, a phone, you know, and they're holding it up to their ear. They can't figure it out. They can't figure out how to open it. Then they finally get the cassette tape, and they don't even know how to put it in. It's, it's hilarious to watch them struggle with something that I know I grew up with. And some of you are in here going, what's a cassette tape? And you're wondering as well, and I can tell you later, but, or go home and look it up on YouTube. So we see younger generation. We see older generation. We see people struggle with certain these things. But as I was reading this article this past week, this to me was probably the most sobering one, because it's not just old and young, it's even young adults, right? And, and what I was reading was a, a, an article in the Wall Street Journal that was talking about the changing demographics of our country, right? That it, it was looking in the fact that millennials are now the largest generation that we have in our country. They've overtaken the boomers. And so naturally, as they come to age, industries, organizations, companies are trying to tap into them to get their buying power, right? And so they're, they're doing all, this, all these efforts to, to engage Millennials, especially these 26, 27, 28-year-olds. But what they're discovering is that millennials are unlike any other generation, right? They, they had a different upbringing, and so they have a different context, different skill set. This was a generation that was largely raised on soccer games and piano lessons and things like that. And so there are these, these certain skills that, that they're just not familiar with. And so companies are, are realizing they have to alter the products that they offer, their marketing campaigns, and they're even including now, this is what was interesting to me, some instructional videos on some of their current products. And so there was this detail that like companies like Scott's and Procter & Gamble and Sherwin-Williams and Home Depot were literally discovering this lack of knowledge that they now have these instructional videos that included like how to use a lawnmower, um, how to pick out paint color, how to use hammer and nails, um, how to mop a floor, or my personal favorite, how to use a tape measure. And, and I kid you not, like, I went and found it. It's, it's on Home Deep. Like, you can find a two-minute video that's like, this is the lock button. This is the measurement. And it literally walks you through how to use a tape. Can I just tell you something? If that's you, and you don't know how to use a tape measure, you don't need a video. You need prayer, okay? And 
And we'll pray for you today, all right? We'll pray for you, and then we'll introduce you to John Fisher, and he'll cure everything, okay? Here's the point, right? It doesn't matter what age. It, we all have these experiences where there's a time where we find something we don't know how to use it. Because everything is designed with a purpose, right? It, it has a particular design to it that, that if you don't understand how it's supposed to be used, it becomes worthless, doesn't it? Like, like a garage door opener is a poor excuse for a remote control. It's, it's worthless in that setting. If you don't know what to use with a tape measure for, it's, it's worthless. Everything is designed with a purpose, including you. Every single one of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we are designed with a particular purpose in mind. Now, what we typically do is when we step into the arena of faith, we begin to consider this through the lens of calling. Right? We look at it through an individualistic perspective and we think, okay, what is God wanting to do with me? It's one of the most common questions that we see in this faith journey. What am I supposed to do with my life? What is God calling me to do? It's an incredibly important question, one we always have to wrestle with. But for this series, I want us to step back from the individualistic perspective and think about it more holistically. Creation itself, like, like male and female human. We were designed with a particular purpose in mind. And if we fail to see what that purpose is, well, then we find ourselves being distracted and distorted in what it is that we do with our lives. So in order to, to achieve this, I kind of want to walk through a little bit of the history of, of the biblical narrative that will lead us to a greater understanding of what it is that we're designed to do, right? And, and to do that, we go back to Genesis 1, Right, and you look at this creation narrative and we see this progression, right? That it starts with the, the more general descriptions of creation, right? That God created the heavens and the earth, right? He created the night and the day, the land and the sea, right? The sky. He creates all these things more generally, but as the creation account unfolds, it gets more and more specific to living creatures, right? Now, when he gets to living creatures, what we see is that ultimately the specificity ends in one being. Right? And it's this progression that leads kind of this climactic moment of creating male and female. And what is distinct about the creation of male and female is that every other living creature, whether it's plants or the, or the birds of the air or the beasts of the field, they're creating according to their, their kind. Right? That's what you see in Genesis 1. But with male and female, he says, let us make them in our image. Both male and female, he created them in his image. That's our design. If, if we begin to look at what we are created to be, we, we could say that we are image bearers of our creator. Now, what does that mean exactly? The, the question fundamentally becomes, does that mean we're created in his image, meaning we exhibit certain characteristics of our God, even physical characteristics of our God, or are we created as his image, meaning we just represent him in his creative tendencies here in creation? And as I studied it a little bit this past week, I think scholars would argue that it's a little bit of both, right? That in some ways what sets us apart is that we do represent or carry certain characteristics of our God, right? We, whether it's the reason or it's the, the love or the, the soul dynamic, there, there are certain characteristics that make us distinct. And yet, we also represent his creative abilities by the fact that he entrusts certain elements of creation to us, right? Rule over creation, subdue it. We, we have a certain authority and a power that has only been given to us. So we are created 
in the image of God, this is where we begin to understand our design. And if I were to summarize that for you, right, if we were to pinpoint what that means, I would argue that one way to describe it would be that we were created for worship, to reveal this creator. That's what we're designed to do. Now, the problem that we see as we walk through human history and as we look within our own lives is that there's this great exchange that takes place, right, that Paul talks about in Romans 1, that we were created to give glory to this creator, but what's happened is that we've exchanged the glory for an immortal God for created things. That though we knew God, we, never, we neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, and so this great exchange means rather than reflecting the image of our creator, we begin to give our attention, our focus to created things, and this becomes the avenue of idolatry, right? To exchange the glory of an immortal God and fail to reflect his image in our lives. And so how does that unfold? Well, well, there are several things that I want us to see through the courses of the scriptures before we get to 2 Kings 17 that to me highlight the tendencies and the potential or, or the things that lead us into idolatry, right? Because this becomes a consistent issue. So, so what we see is that God establishes his covenant with Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, right? And then he has Abraham's descendants, ultimately Joseph, uh, leads the family to Egypt, and as we've talked recently several times, they grow up into captivity in Egypt, but then through the Exodus, God sets them free from that captivity. And when he does, he says, I want to set you apart as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, right, that, that you would reflect my name, that all the nations would know me because of how I live with you. And, and God is the center of their life and their existence. Okay? So, so that's the arrangement. That's the relationship. Moses goes on the mountain to begin to, to discover the rules and regulations to achieve that. And he's not gone for very long at all before somebody comes there and says, Hey, this Moses guy's taking forever. Like, where, where is he? W- would you make for us an image that we can worship? And he agrees. And he gathers up their, their gold, their jewelry, and he fashions this, this golden calf, right? And, and this is a familiar story. And what I want to point out to you is that this was not something that was learned from surrounding nations, but it, it's originated with God's people. And even in its origins, there was still this tendency that they thought they were worshiping correctly, possibly, right? Because it, even Aaron says, tomorrow we'll have a festival to the Lord. Right? There is this element of wanting to celebrate being brought out of, out of Egypt, but it was completely distorted. And so Moses comes down, he rebukes them for it, right? They have this, this massive confrontation, and, and we have this clarification that he is the Lord our God. We shall have no other gods but him and not make unto him a graven image. Once again, seeing the, the sanctity of being created in his image, that he creates us in his image, we don't create him and ours, right? And so you have this, this example that really shows us this, this inherent struggle that most of us have, that, that, that people have had throughout the generations of trying to figure out how do we articulate the divine and this propensity to creating some image. And so throughout their story, throughout history, we see this journey into idolatry with God's people. You go to Numbers 25 and you see this reference to the men falling into these sexual improper relationships with these Moabite women and once they have those relationships, the Moabite women convince them to start following their gods. Right? You get to Judges 2. And in Judges 2, you have this depiction that says when a whole generation had passed on and a new generation uh, uh, came up, they didn't know the Lord their God. 
They didn't know how to worship him. Nobody had taught them, and so they followed other gods and began to imitate the practices of other nations. And so you see these temptations along the way, and then in 1 Samuel 8, you see a really critical shift in the way in which God's people relate to God. Right, that up until that point, God was the center of their life despite their occasional failings. But in 1 Samuel 8, what do they do? They come to Samuel and say, we want a king. And Samuel says, no, God is your king. And they said, no, we want to be like other nations. And they're, they're drifting away from being set apart where God's name is exalted, where they begin to imitate other nations. And so God relents and lets them have a king, but it sets them on this incredible slope of destruction. Because once a king is in place, obviously we have Saul and we have David. David, despite all of his moral failures, is a man after God's own heart, exhibited a full devotion to God. But when his son assumes the throne, Solomon, 1 Kings 11, I think it is, we see that again, he has all these wives, all these concubines, right? And what does it say? That because of his love and his devotion for his wives, he starts to follow other gods, And now with this idolatry beginning to work its way into this kingly line, we have this division that splinters this kingdom. 1 Kings 12, you have this feud between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and and Jeroboam kind of has this one territory, and he becomes concerned that that if people go to Jerusalem to worship God, that they're going to leave him and follow Jeroboam. And so what does he do? He creates two golden calves and says, good news, you don't have to travel, you can worship him right here, right, just stay here. Here And he uses that form of idolatry to maintain that loyalty and allegiance. And now we're on this progression where you read through 1 Kings and you see time and time again, as somebody assumes the throne, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so often it's related to idolatry. You see Ahab and Jezebel. You see all these people that lead them into this idolatrous situation. Now I bring that up. Because even though those specific manifestations of idolatry feel like ancient stories, the propensity, the impulses for idolatry are alive and well in our own hearts. Think about the things that led them into it. Just a desire to worship something, not having strong leadership to tell them what to worship. Maybe, Maybe having this temptation to go according to what other people are telling you to do. Or maybe having this, this lack of knowledge, right? Nobody taught me how to worship. Nobody showed me how to, to follow God correctly. Or this, this leading towards this greed and wanting to maintain power and control. Right? All the things that led God's people into idolatry back then are alive and well in our hearts today. And so when we get to 2 Kings 17, we have this really significant description of all of it. Right? And it shows us kind of the implications of this sort of lifestyle and what idolatry can do. And, and so what I want to do is, as we read through this, I want you to understand what's just happened. Hosea has just taken the throne, and once again, he's done evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, he had declared loyalty to the king of Assyria. But in addition to that, he was viewed as a traitor because he apparently had also shown some sort of loyalty to the king of Egypt. So the king of Assyria is, is furious with him, comes in, captures him, makes him a prisoner, and lays siege to the land for three years. War, bloodshed breaks out because of this betrayal and this, this, this traitor. And so as a result, once they lay siege to land, it says they, t- they take all the people, they round them up, and they take them to Assyria. This is the beginning of the exile. So think of that progression. Brought up out of captivity to where God would be the center of their life, the center of their worship. And the more and more they stepped away from that arrangement, they went right back into bondage and captivity. That's what idolatry does. And so starting in verse 7, 
we see the, the elements of this idolatry, how the people responded to it, and how God responded to their acts. So let's read, starting in verse 7. It says, All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves in the Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God. They followed the practices of Israel had introduced. And therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of the plunders until he thrust them from his presence. Really uplifting passage, isn't it? Right? Be encouraged, right? Let's, let's enjoy that one. So many different things about this passage that, that I want us to use as a foundation for this series. There are three angles in which I want us to consider it this morning. I want us to first look at the elements of idolatry that are described here. I want us to look at how the people responded to idolatry and then how God responded to the act of idolatry. Okay, now once we've quickly looked at those things, we'll bring it into a more modern perspective and apply it to our current context. Uh, now, the first thing that we need to see, the exile, the problem of them being held in this captivity with Assyria says, all this took place, why? Because they sinned. They sinned against the Lord and, and what was that sin? This wasn't some accidental, incidental sin. The sin was that they worshipped other gods. It's idolatry. Right, so make no mistake, this, this is why this happens. Right? There are ramifications for choosing to devote ourselves to somebody other than the Lord. And this passage kind of helps us see the importance of those ramifications. Right? And so the elements of idolatry that we see here are these devotions to these other gods, right? The word worship means, it's actually two different words that we find in this passage. One is related to fear, right, reverence, and the other is related to servanthood, to actually serve them. And so you see this, this manifestation of worshiping other gods, and it's, and it's really numerous, right? The first reference is to all these high places, right? From every watchtower and fortified city, they built them high places. Now, a high place in this context was kind of contradictory to what the Lord had established, because at this point in time, they had the temple where, where the Lord dwelt, and that was where they were supposed to go and to worship and to offer sacrifices to him. But what was common practice for the nations around them 
is that they would find these high places, these natural hills, and they'd build these shrines. They'd build these altars, and, and they would have these cultic practices that included burning incense and sacrifice and prostitution, all these uh, terrible things that would take place. And so God's people just began to worship there as opposed to going to where God dwelt. And so you would see these shrines that were built, and a lot of times they were these sacred stones that were meant to represent other deities. And in some of all these deities, were, there were numerous ones, but the ones that seem to be the most frequently referred to in the scriptures are Asherah and Baal. And, and so when you look at the scriptures, there's some things that we can learn about the beliefs in these, these gods and this goddess, but, but a lot of it is come, comes from extra-biblical material, kind of outside sources. And, and kind of a brief summary is that these were gods that were uh, unique to the land of Canaan, and, and they represented kind of a view of creation, right? Asherah was actually believed to be kind of the mother of creation, kind of a creatress, if you will. And she was married to a deity referred to as El, and, and their son was Baal. Okay, and so there is this view of her uh, in this kind of creative role. Now, Baal was believed to be kind of the god of storms and rain, right? Which makes sense with the story with Elijah, if you're familiar with that on Mount Carmel. But there, there's all these different um, expressions of Baal. And in this worship, and so a lot of times when they would worship Baal, they also had this Asherah pole because they saw them in somewhat connectivity, right? And so there were these other deities, but it wasn't just these deities. It was burning of incense. It was this uh, seeking these divinations in terms of seeking futuristic omens and spirits. There, is, there were all these other practices. You see these words, idols, that again, the words are, are oftentimes used as referring to kind of a molten metal or an image, Right? And, and that word image keeps coming back, a distorted image that they're worshiping a created thing rather than the creator. And so you see all these different elements of idolatry, and, and probably, not probably, I mean, obviously the most um, horrific of them all is the sacrifice of children. Right? So this, my point is, is that this, this was rebellion. Okay? This was a complete dismissal of God's role in their life, okay? And, and, and the reason we can say that is because we can consider, well, how did they arrive at this point? If those were the elements, how did the people end up living such a life? What was their response? Well, the first way to answer that is, well, what should they have done? So if you go back to Deuteronomy 12, you can read in those first few verses what the Lord instructs them to do, that when they encounter these sorts of situations or these altars or these places, he says, destroy them. Right, obliterate them, strike them down, strike the name off of these places so that the people that come behind you don't know what was worshipped there. And I think that's a very important word for you and me. Right, because it's not saying just avoid worshipping these. It's destroy it. Don't avoid idols, destroy idols. See, you and I, in our setting, I think our common tendency is just to avoid them. Right? Let's just make sure we don't fall victim to this rebellion. But the real instruction is, no, if you encounter idols that are distorting how people should live and how they should function, destroy it. Call it out. Let people not fall victim to something that's going to rob them of why they were created to be. Make sure that the people that come behind you don't realize that this is so destructive. But you've got to fight for this devotion and this worship for God. We don't just turn a blind eye to it. And worry about ourselves. No, we actually should see it and destroy it. Destroy this idea of idolatry. But they failed to do so. Not only did they fail to destroy it, they invoked it. Right? And so what was their reaction? Rather than destroying the idols, they rejected the Lord. 
right? They forsook his commands and his decrees, right? They were stubborn. My, my favorite word in the description there was that they were stiff-necked, right? This is a, a word that was used to describe oxen when they would put this yoke on an oxen to plow a field, and they would try to turn the oxen a certain way. The oxen would remain stiff-necked to go the way that it wanted to go, and this is how they're described, right? It's, it's this reminder that there are these times in our lives where God prompts us to live a certain way and we say, no, I wanna go my own. And it's that stiff-necked mentality. And I wanna stop there and just ask for a moment, what is that for you at this point in time? Is there something going on in your life where you feel the Lord is leading you a certain direction, but there's a stubbornness that you just won't surrender, right? There's this impulse that he says, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang on to this. I'm gonna keep going my way. I know what God wants from me, but I really don't wanna let it go. See, that's a tendency we all carry. And it's one that leads towards idolatry. It was this rejection of his decrees, rejection of who, they had, who God had designed them to be so that they could go their own way. And that was uh, the response from the people. And it, and it leads us to a word of caution. Because once we see how these elements of, of idolatry interacted with the reaction of the people, then we see how God reacts. What does it say? He was provoked to anger. Right, he was incited, he was vexed, he was hostile. You know, we struggle sometimes with the idea that, that God can be angry. Because we, we really love First John, God is love. Right, let's hang out there, that's awesome. And as soon as we hear God's anger, we were like, well, how, is, how does that work with love? But nowhere in the Bible does it say God doesn't get angry. It says he's slow to anger, but he gets angry. And I don't, I don't view his anger as a contradiction to his divine love. I think it's an affirmation for his divine love. That he loves us so deeply, he created us with this idea of us worshiping him that when we refuse to do so and we go our own way, we, we have this stiff-necked approach that incites that anger. And so what's his response? It says that he casts them from his presence. It's similar to what we see in Romans 1, that he gives them over to a depraved mind. It's almost as if God says, okay, fine, you want to go your own way? I'll let you go. You want to depart from me? Go. And see where that life leads you. And so we, we see this response that idolatry leads us to a greater separation from God and what it was that he desired. And so this is the problem of idolatry. Now, if I were to summarize all of that from that chapter, here's the verse that I want us to hang on to. Right, did you, did you see it? They worshiped worthless idols and themselves became worthless. That's the problem of idolatry. We find this devotion in a created thing that is ultimately worthless because it's not the creator. And when we do that, we ourselves lose the sense of our very purpose and the very thing that God designed us to be and to do. And we become worthless. We, we become empty and futile in our life in the way that God designed us. It's this, this message that's reiterated in Jeremiah as well, and it, and it shows us that the problem with idolatry is that first and foremost, there is this understanding that whatever it is we worship, we have a tendency to then reflect that image. That's kind of the, the, the notion of worship, that whatever we worship, we begin to transform ourselves into the object of our devotion. And the problem is, is that when we put our devotion in something as worthless as an idol, then it ultimately destroys us rather than fulfilling us. And so we must understand what is meaningful worship. Now, how do we take all that? Let me, let me kind of wrap this up by saying, how do we take all of that and bring it into a modern understanding for our context? 
right? Because we look at some of that and we go, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't fully resonate with those same problems of idolatry. It, it feels a little bit different for our context today. So, so here's how I would connect it for us. Here's what's really interesting. is If you were to continue reading 2 Kings 17, what you'd see is that after everybody was taken out and, and taken into exile into Assyria, the king lets other people come in and settle in those villages and those towns. And what's fascinating is that because they weren't God's people, it says God actually sent lions into the village to kill people. So like, like imagine being the new homeowner in that neighborhood, right? Like I didn't see this on Zillow. There's the lion problem here, right? Like, like they were concerned, obviously. Lions just start killing people. So they go to the king and they say, hey, can you send us some priests that used to live here so that we can figure out what the God of this land requires? And so they send some priests back and they teach them a few things about Yahweh, right? And how he desired worship. And so that, that kind of cures the lion problem. But then in verse 33, we get this really interesting Summary that says, so then they started to worship the Lord, but also continue to serve their idols. And so then the chapter concludes by, by this final word of reminder, this is not what you're supposed to do. You should only serve me. You shouldn't make any other graven image. And then in verse 40 at the end, it says, but they didn't listen. They worshiped Yahweh and continued to serve other gods. Well, if there is an indictment for our culture and our tendency it's that one. How many times do you and I find ourselves going, all right, I want to figure out what the, what the God of this land requires, right? Especially here in kind of the Bible Belt, right? Here in Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth. What, what's customary? What, what do I need to do to exhibit some sort of worship to the God here, right? And we, we learn the, the rules of cultural Christianity. Come to Sunday, come to Wednesday, have a quiet time, be in a small group. And we, we integrate those things into our lives and we worship Yahweh while serving other gods. And we keep a grip on our idols. And we fool ourselves into thinking that idolatry is not an issue because we're following the laws of the land, right? What the God of the land requires. But we still cling to these other worthless areas of devotion. And so what does that look like? Well, there's, there's this great book uh, that I read a little over a year ago that was written by Andy Crouch. It's called Playing God. Andy Crouch is the editor of Christianity Today and uh, puts things so simply and yet in a very insightful perspective. And he was talking about just the, the power of God and how we should seek a, a healthy understanding of power. And in, in the course of this book, he talks about the problem of idolatry. And I'm going to paraphrase him uh, pretty extensively here for the next few minutes because I think he gives us a great understanding of the problem of idolatry and how we need to guard against it. Because what he says, he goes, the, the promise of every idol is the same as the deception that we see in the garden. Every idol promises two things. You will not die and you'll be like God. Right, that's the temptation that kind of kind of wrap itself around our hearts and lead us astray. And it's not to say that when we find these other idols that we literally think that we won't die, that we'll live forever, or that we'll have God-like powers. Now, what it's saying is, is that there's this belief that you can have a life apart from God, right? That there's something you can find that will give you fulfillment, that will meet your desires, and, and that's the temptation that we want. And so we, we go into this, and here's the, the way that idolatry begins. It starts from taking goodness to greatness, right? We find something that is good, and we ask it to be great, Right? We, we look at it and, and we look beyond its limitations. We look beyond its, 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 its variables that prevent it from being more than what it should be. And then we ask it to be great. We give it all of our hopes. We give it all of our dreams, all of our desires. 
to see if it can fulfill us. Right? So we take a job, a career, a good thing, and then we ask it to be great. We give it all of our hopes, all of our fears, asking it to meet everything that we need only to see that it fails. Or we find a person, spouse, a friend, a mentor, and we ask them to be not just a good person, but a great person. And we give them all of our hopes and our fears only to see them disappoint us. Right? This is what idolatry does. Here's the trick. See, an idol starts by convincing you that it's good right, and that it's actually working that it actually can be great. And so the trick of idolatry is, is Crouch quotes this psychiatrist named Jeffrey Sanator. He says, idolatry asks for you to give more and more while giving less and less until ultimately it demands everything and gives you nothing. And that's exactly how idolatry works. Let me give you an extreme example. Think about drug addiction, right? The, the, the lure into drug addiction is let me find something that I think can be not just good but great. And so I have one experience, I take one hit or whatever, and it gives me this euphoric high, right, that sets me free, so to speak, and it gives me a feeling unlike anything else, and so I I long for that desire, oh, it delivered, it did something nothing else in my life can do, and so I'm going to go back for it, but only now when I go back, I need a little bit more to get that same experience, and the next time I go back, I need a little bit more, and I keep having to give more and more and more until we get this picture of addiction that results in people losing their jobs, losing their families, losing their security, losing their life. It, it demands more and more, gives less and less, until ultimately it demands everything and gives nothing. See, this is the journey of idolatry. Let me read to you one quote that he has that I think summarizes it very succinctly. He says, Idols consume us in a slow and agonizing death, a sort of cancer of the soul, and along the way, we become transformed into their image rather than in the image of God. We lose a sense of our purpose. We lose a sense of what we are created to do. And so the reason I say all that is because over the next few weeks, when we start discussing these idols, they're gonna start out by looking good. Things that make you go, oh, that, that shouldn't be that bad. And, and we will all have experiences where we think, yeah, this is a really good thing, but if we're not careful, it leads us into that destruction. So let me close with this last question. When we know that there's this problem of idolatry, let me ask you today, when you think about your life, when you think about what it is that you worship, what altar do you run to? Right? How many of us are trying to run to the altar of, of Christ, but also maintain some sort of grip on these other idols and trying to do both? See, the the thing about worship is that it articulates what it is that we believe has true power in our life. And we fall victim to believing that there are other things that can show us a greater power than this gospel. And I love the way that Andy Crouch puts it in a great perspective by reminding us of the power of this gospel. Here's what he says. He says, this is why the love that is the heartbeat of the Christian story, the Father's love for the Son and through the Son for the world is not simply a sentimental feeling or a distant ethereal theological truth, but has been signed and sealed by the most audacious act of true power in the history of the world, the resurrection of the Son from the dead. Power at its best is resurrection to full life, to full humanity, whenever human beings become what they were meant to be, when even death cannot finally hold its prisoners, then we can truly speak of power. 
See, what you and I need to rediscover is that nothing compares to the risen Christ. That it is only through the hope of the resurrection that you and I are finally on, on a journey of becoming the very thing that we were designed to be. Someone that can see this Jesus and understand that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and he deserves our full devotion and worship. So we don't need to run to the altars of pride. We don't need to run to the altars of, of greed and materialism and families and relationships. No, we need to run to the altar of Christ and take in once again the beauty of this gospel and declare with our lives what a wonderful Savior. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He is Lord of all. And only then will we truly worship and the way in which we were designed to be one who reflects the image of an almighty creator who has revealed himself through the risen Christ. That's the journey that we pursue. That's the sort of love and devotion we want to exhibit. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for what you've done for us through the cross. And we confess to you now, Father, that there are there are so many things that distract us from that devotion, so many things that keep us chained through our own captivity. And so I just pray that you would help us be set free. That if there's anyone in here today that has struggled with any form of devotion and worship to something else, God, that you would allow us to now see the fullness of this gospel and only commit our hearts to you. And so, Father, we, we pray that, that we would be able to come to this altar and just declare with our lives that you are the wonderful Savior that we need and that we would be able to live not just on a Sunday morning but Monday and Tuesday and through the rest of the week a life that exalts you and puts the other idols in their proper perspective. It allows us to say that you truly are Lord of all and to give you praise, to give you the glory and the honor that you deserve. And so we thank you for a day like today. May we steward it well. May we once again celebrate that you are good because of what you've done through, for us through Christ. And may that compel us to worship you as the image bearers that you designed us to be. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen. So here's what we're going to do. You've got a little bit of extended time for worship this morning. And uh, this next song hopefully draws our hearts to this truth that we've tried to proclaim through the scriptures. That only Christ is worthy of of worship, and it's only to his altar that we need to come and surrender ourselves. So I'm gonna invite you to stand and to sing, and then after we've had a chance to worship a little bit, I'll come back up and offer more of a direct invitation for any decisions. But regardless of where you are in your life, let's respond not to each other, but to the God that saves us. Let's stand together and sing a song of response. Are you hurting and broken within? Over come to the end of yourself do you thirst for a drink from the well Jesus is calling oh come to the altar the Father's arms are open wide forgiveness 
mistakes come today there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling bring your sorrows and trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling oh come to the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few I will hold the sure and steady anchor while the tempest rages on when temptation claims the battle and it seems 
We thank you that you are unfailing. Sing this next verse together. Christ the sure and steady anchor Through the floods of unbelief Hopeless somehow Oh, my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance. See his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ the standing. Uh, at this point in time, I would love to offer an invitation, uh, an invitation that if you have any decision that you'd like to make public today, then we want to celebrate that with you. Uh, obviously, there are numerous ways in which you can join the church. You don't have to do it in this moment, but a lot of times that's something we love to celebrate together. And so if that's something the Lord has put on your heart, that you want to be a part of this church family, then we want to welcome you with open arms and celebrate that decision with you. Uh, if you need prayer for anything going on in your life, you can come forward and we'd be happy to pray with you. But obviously, the, the most important decision is the anchor that you put in your life. And a lot of us, sometimes we, we go through the motions and we walk through certain decisions, but we don't truly put that trust and that devotion in Christ and what he's done. And so if that's something you want to commit to, if that's something you want to celebrate, then we want to do that with you, if you want to put your trust in Christ. Because we know that the only way that any of this is possible, the goodness that we've sung about today, the rescue from, from bondage and from idolatry, is only through the grace and the power of this gospel. So as we sing this song about grace, if you have a decision you want to make public, then come forward. But may we all, as his church, sing of this wonderful truth that changes all of us and celebrate the king that we serve. Let's sing together. Your grace that leads the sinner home from death to life And sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. 
And you can be seated for just a brief moment. What a wonderful thing to celebrate is the beauty of this grace. And there are numerous ways uh, that we would encourage you to continue celebrating that throughout the course of this week. Obviously, we have opportunities for you to come up and worship with us on Wednesday. Uh, we have several things uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks that you can look at on the inside of your worship guide. But uh, one or two things I want to pinpoint for us before we go. First of all, if you haven't had a chance to walk outside our fellowship hall, where the, the prayer garden is, uh, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, Eric Epstein, are you back there, my friend? Can you just wave your hand? Uh, part of his Eagle Scout project was to get a crew of people up here, and in the cold, wonderful Texas weather, brother, just for you, in sub-30 degree wind chill temperatures, they came and did an amazing work for our church. And uh, so uh, can we just put our hands together for appreciation for that? It was awesome. And we truly appreciate it. And that's, that's one of the cool things about it is this people coming in and, and giving their time and their talents uh, to this church and God's kingdom. So we thank you for that. Uh, we also want to just celebrate a decision that was made this morning. So let me invite Hadley to come forward along with her family. Brad, Kendall, Laurel, anybody else? Come on up. Obviously, uh, the Jones family and, and, and just their, their role here has been instrumental on so many different fronts. And we have been blessed by this family 
on so many different occasions, and we want to celebrate with them today as Hadley's come forward to confess her belief in Jesus Christ and to accept him as her Savior. So amen to that. Amen to that. Hadley, we're proud of you, girl, and we're awesome, and we want to celebrate with you. I told her that I was going to ask her to come stand, and as we traditionally do uh, here in just a second, when I dismiss you with a benediction, I would invite you to come forward. Uh, greet this family and express your encouragement to them and your encouragement to Hadley. And we're happy for you, girl. It's awesome. And it's a great representation of the grace that we just sung about. And so with that in mind, let me invite you to stand and offer a closing word of benediction. And then once we do uh, finish this prayer, then we'll be dismissed and you guys can have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. And today we, we come to you and we give you praise for the grace that leads us home. We come to this altar where we see the wonderful beauty of our Savior. We thank you for the many ways in which you prompt us and stir us to, to serve you and to worship you with our lives, to, to labor for you and to toil for you in the ways in which you redeem us and restore us. We thank you for this decision today from Hadley, and we celebrate that. And we thank you for the many ways in which you stir and remind all of us of this saving grace that transforms us. So now may we leave here today filled with your Spirit, filled with a greater devotion of you so that we would not uh, go out into this world aimless and without direction, but one filled with purpose and devotion to worship the living God and our creator, that we may bear his image fully, for it's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. You have a wonderful Sunday. Go in peace. Come forward and can offer a word of congratulations to Hadley.